Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. This is the next to the last sermon in the series on Closer Than Close. Let me encourage you, if you're reading the book, to, uh, to finish. Uh, it is uh, easy to get to this point in a book like that. Many of you are reading it and kind of stall. And so let me encourage you to keep, uh, keep trucking. There is a Chinese proverb that says, A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's interesting that when the Bible talks about our relationship with God, the Bible uses terminology that runs counter to our culture, uh, counter to the American way of doing things. When the Bible talks about our relationship with God, Paul in Galatians 5 says we are to produce fruit. And if you've ever farmed, if if you've ever grown anything, fruit takes a while to produce. It takes time. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about it being a walk, not a sprint, not a race, not a run, but a walk. And a walk is a steady move in the right direction. That's what a walk is. It is day in and day out, one step at a time. Now, when Paul talks about this walk, it's, he's not lackadaisical about it. Paul says about this walk, that the way the walk ought to be, he says, I urge you. So there's an urgency that Paul has. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul has a sense of urgency, but the urgency is about the one foot in front of the other Walk. That's the urgency that Paul has. It's about a walk. So this morning, the sermon is for two kinds of people. There are some of you, and you've walked with God for quite some time now, years, and you wonder why you're seeing the same scenery again and again and again. You assess your life, your walk with God. And as you assess it, you think to yourself, I should be farther along than I am. I should be doing better than I am. And I'm not sure why I'm not. This message is for you. Then there are others of you and you sit here this morning and you're stuck You're standing still. Sin has tripped you up. It has frozen you in your tracks. And when you sit here this morning, you've come here hoping to hear something. Hoping to hear something that may kind of move you from where you are to where you need to be. And I would say to you, the word for you is to get up. Is to get walking again. To get up and to get walking. And for those of you who wonder why you're seeing the same scenery, the word for you is to keep walking. 
So let's delve in and see. Paul says in order to do this, there are five attitudes that we must have. It's interesting that the imperative comes before the indicative in this passage. The command comes before the reason why we ought to do what it is, Paul says, we ought to do. And so let's look at the five attitudes and then we'll figure out why in the world Paul is going to give so much attention to these five attitudes. The first attitude is an attitude of humility. Humility is a deep sense of one's own moral smallness or moral littleness. I love C.S. Lewis's definition of of humility. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. You say, Jerry, what what does C.S. Lewis mean by that? Philippians 2, verses 5 and following, Have this same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Jesus never thought less of himself. He never thought himself to be less than God. So he always knew and thought of himself as God. But look how he acted. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so if true humility is not thinking less of oneself, but of thinking of oneself less, in order to think of oneself less, you have to think of others what? More. When you think of yourself less, you will naturally think of others more. So who is it then that Jesus thought of more? Glad you asked. The writer of Hebrews shares the answer to that. 12 verse 2. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. So if Jesus emptied himself, if he thought less of himself, then who did he think more of? You. You were the joy set before him. You were the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. When Jesus was on the cross, you were running through his mind. Why? Why would Jesus think less of, uh, think of himself less and think of you more? The writer, Paul of Ephesians, tells us why. Verse 12, chapter 2. Because at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those five descriptors describe you and me apart from Christ, separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope, hopeless without God. So when Jesus died on the cross for us, that was our condition. But the very next verse, verse 13, tells us what happened. I love that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please hear me. 
If Jesus had not been humbled, none of this ever would have happened. None of it. None of it ever would have happened had Christ not emptied himself and humbled himself and thought not less of himself. He always thought of himself as God, but thought of himself less. Second, an attitude of gentleness. What is gentleness? It is that often difficult word to define. Uh, The Bible often uses the word meekness. Meekness in many of our minds equals weakness, right? In the Greek culture, it did. You were considered, if you were meek, to be weak. In our culture today, you're considered, if you're meek, to be weak. You say, Jerry, how can you tell? Watch the election. Just watch it. Do you see any meekness emerging in any of our potential leaders? None at all. None. Meekness is a gentleness. The Chinese-American Christian leader, Russell Jung, explains how his folks got him to get this. He said, we would host dinners. He said, Chinese Americans in my growing up days were often mistreated by others. And so we would host meals in our home. And when we did, my my dad had one job for me. He said, my job was to go around and make sure those little teacups were filled. So as a young man, he said, I would go around the table and my job was to fill teacup after teacup and make sure they were filled. And he said, honestly, growing up in my home, I I felt my dad took more pride in my filling teacups and serving those people than when I brought home good grades. It was such a value. And then he goes on to add this, and I wanted to share it because I think it just just takes a, a meekness and drives it home. He said, if you look at the Chinese word for humility, or the phrase, it's two words, jiang shun. And if you look at jiang and you look at shun, jiang is this word picture. It is a picture of somebody carrying a whole uh, a group or sheaf uh, of, of hay or wheat. And he said, that picture is you prioritize the group over one. And he said, if you look at Shun, it's a pictograph of the way a grandchild walks. He says, so in Chinese culture, humility is this young grandchild saying, what matters to me more than anything are everybody else around me. That's meekness. Meekness is not me first. Jesus' own words, as he describes himself... Just in case you aren't convinced that meekness is good, come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? Gentle. I am meek, I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, We will have an attitude of humility. We will have an attitude of meekness. Third, we will have an attitude of patience. Patience is used to describe The patience of God with people. I must say to you, I don't think you learn patience until you become a parent. I I just don't. All right, I think if you think you know patience and you've not yet parented children, you don't know patience. You don't know patience until you've told your three-year-old 589 times the same thing. Right? Because that's how you parent. They don't get it the first time or the 48th. They just don't. But could you listen in? 
If you've ever thought there is a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New and somehow the God of the Old is gracious and the God of the New is not, could you listen in to how the God of the Old Testament in this moment, so grateful that Moses took his pen, wrote these words down. You see, Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to see God in all his glory. But no man can look on God and live. So God said, I'll pass through the cleft of the rock. And you you can look at my hind uh, parts. You can look at the back of me, not at the front of me. And so God passes through and he has a conversation with Moses. And this is God describing himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Aren't you glad? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keep in steadfast love for thousands. God is slow to anger. God in his holiness and in his awesomeness. If he came and consumed us for our sinful attitudes and our sinful actions, we'd be done in a split second, would we not? God is so great. He is so big that when Solomon built this massive house for him, I'm going through this in my own quiet time, Second Chronicles, Solomon builds a house that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars were it to be built today. Solomon then constructs a bronze altar. He climbs upon the, he's the great king of Israel. He climbs upon that altar, that bronze altar, and this king who is so adored by his people, he was the only king under Israel when all the borders were secured. Solomon was this wise king. He climbs upon that altar and he bows in front of all of his people and he begins to pray to God. And when he prays to God, he said, God, I've attempted to build a building for you. I have attempted to build the temple. But God... Can this structure, this structure, and folks, it was massive. It was ornate. It was gorgeous. He said, can this contain you? God, can what I built for you contain you? And as if God said, no, it can't. When Solomon finished praying, the presence of God came down and smoke billowed out of the temple so that God's presence just came billowing out of that place. The God who is that great, the God who is that mighty, is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. If he wasn't, he would obliterate us. He would. But there are consequences to sin. Who will by no means clear the guilty. If you sit in this room this morning and you say, yes, uh, I hear you, what you're saying about that God, but that God isn't for me. Your family will pay. That's what this says. You say, Jerry, it sounds like a threat. No, it isn't. This is the God who abounds in steadfast love. But if you say, no, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want that. Your family will pay for that. To the third and fourth generation, what does that mean? It just means there are consequences for unrepentant people. Unrepentant sin will not go unjudged. And the natural consequences are that addicts often beget addicts, don't they? Control freaks often beget control freaks. Fear mongers often beget fear mongers. Why? We don't rush to God. We, 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 don't, we don't give that to Him. God is patient. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? 
One of our top ten values at Grace, I'll lead starting point this afternoon, I talk about this every time, is positive life change. Positive life change, and the way I picture it, the way I will this afternoon, is kind of like this, is that, is that you're from a negative ten to a plus ten. What does that mean? Negative ten, I don't know, don't know God, don't believe in God, don't love God, don't care for God. Plus ten, God's my number one, I love him. Anything past a zero is a believer. All right, so people come to grace at all places on this, and we're glad. Some of you sitting here this morning, and I know you're sitting here, and I know you're here because your parents made you come. I know that. And I know you care little for what I say, but I'm grateful, number one, for your parents just stepping up and doing what they ought to do. And number two, I'm glad you're sitting here. You honor me just by listening. And there are some of you who couldn't wait to get out of bed and get here this morning. <laughs> All across the scale, people are in this room. I remember years ago, years ago, this guy would come to the second service. He would sit over to my left. It was on a Wednesday night. He came in. He wanted to sit and talk with me. And he came into my office and he looked at me and he introduced himself. I had never met him. He had just attended. I had not met him. And he said, hello, my name is John. It was John Kingsley. He said, my name is John. I said, my name is Jerry. He said, well, I just wanted to let you know that I believe God is who he says he is, but I don't believe all that Jesus stuff you're preaching about. I said, well, it's good to meet you too, John. I tell John's story almost every Sunday, uh, almost every month in starting point. And so John and I began to meet once a week. And John and I would meet and we would talk about the claims of the gospel. You see, John believed God to be a creator. And could I say to you, it's, it's mighty difficult to take a ride around the Blue Ridge Mountains right now and think that there isn't a God who even in the dying of his creation has to make it beautiful. Has that occurred to you? That God is so remarkable that when his creation dies, we celebrate it? Because it's gorgeous. Or just this week... I got called to the bedside of, uh, of a dear lady, many of you know, she was 95 years old, Mildred McCauley, called to her bedside. And as I sat by Mildred, as Mildred was dying, I remembered Mildred's sweet spirit. I remembered Mildred's love for the Lord. I remembered how Mildred walked with the Lord. And the doctor said, Mildred's got less than 24 hours to live. Didn't know if she could hear a word I was saying, but I looked into her sweet face and I said, Mildred, you're about to see Jesus. Would you tell him? I said, hello. I am so jealous for you right now. You're going to see him way, hopefully, before I do. Would you tell him? I said, hello. And I, I left the room and I got in my Jeep and I headed out and I thought, how amazing that in the sweetness of a dying saint is the beauty of God. John believed that. He didn't believe the claims of Jesus. So we meet, talk, meet, talk. One night my phone rings. I remember where I was standing in my, I prayed every day for John. God just burdened me for John and my phone rings. And I was in the hallway in my old house and I sat down in that armchair that sits in that stairwell and it was John on the other end. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I said, do what John? He said, I can't do this anymore. I said, what are you talking about? Playing ignorant. He said, I can't run. I said, from who? He said, God. I said, okay. I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, I just did. 
I said, what did you do? He said, I went out on my front porch. I looked up at those stars in the sky and I said, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm trusting him right now. And John moved over into the plus side. I'm in a life group. And do you know who my leader is? John Kingsley. Isn't that awesome? John and Kelsey. Kelsey sits right here. John's on security detail today. Kelsey sits right here. John and Kelsey are our life group leaders. Only God can do that, right? Aren't you glad God is patient? Please hear me. If you're going to hang around grace, you got to be patient. There are people at different places in their belief, in their walk, in their understanding of who God is. And if you're at a minus 10, welcome. And if you're at a plus 10, welcome. We're glad you're here. Amen, church? We're glad you're here. An attitude of patience. Fourth, an attitude of tolerance. I love this phrase. It occurs also in Colossians 3. Exact same phrase. Bearing with one another. Do you know what bearing with means? It means to put up with. That's what it means. It's not some hefty theological term. It means to put up with. Put up with. Every year, at least once a year, I need to talk about this. So it's a fitting time. How in the world do you put up with people? You do when you understand beliefs at three levels. Beliefs, convictions, and preferences. I want to talk about that for a moment. So what are beliefs? Beliefs are essential. There is no tolerance where they're concerned. If you're going to know Christ, you believe these things. What are they? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You believe the Trinity. You believe Christ is the only way to heaven. You believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. You believe that Jesus Christ is going to visibly return to the earth. These are non-negotiables. They're beliefs. You put a period at the end, and if somebody doesn't believe those, you don't fellowship with them as believers. They're they're on the negative side of the, the scale. But then there are convictions. Adrian did a great job in my absence last week, but Wendy and I were in Las Vegas. And we still love Jesus. We do. After spending four or five days in Vegas... My wife works for a massive company, 270,000 employees. I'll brag on her for a moment. So she was chosen as one of 200 to receive a significant award from her company. And they met us. They came to our house and picked us up in our driveway and drove us to the airport and took care of us, waited on us hand and foot. Based on my calculations, this company spent on all of us there about a million and a half bucks. It was unreal. It was just, it was just unreal. At every single one of those events, alcohol flowing. Now, Wendy and I don't drink. There are a couple of reasons we don't. One, Wendy's dad was an alcoholic. And that was very hard on her and her brother. And she hates the stuff. She hates it for what she endured. She just does. Secondly, sprinkled here in this congregation are alcoholics recovering. 
And if you were to be out and see Wendy or me drinking, the thought could go through your head, I think that'd be okay for us too. So that's a small thing for us not to do, right? Small thing for us not to do so as not to trip you up. But I do not think you can go to Scripture and find where Scripture teaches that drinking alcohol is a sin. Scripture clearly teaches that getting drunk is a sin. I just don't think, I think you're hard-pressed to find that in Scripture. So then you would say that's a conviction of mine and Wendy's. So while we, as Wendy likes to say, were hobnobbing in Vegas, we did it with Diet Pepsi. And do you know what we didn't do? Look at all those people who were drinking whatever they were drinking and say, you're going to hell. Why? When you take a conviction and you apply it to everyone, you become a legalist. And when you do that, you diminish beliefs. Because you take a non-negotiable, you take a negotiable, you raise it to the level of a non-negotiable. When you do, the non-negotiables are diluted. Do you know what that dilutes? The gospel. It takes Jesus and the gospel and dilutes it. How about preferences? That's the third level. It's the lowest. You know what preferences are? And incidentally, most churches duke it out over convictions and preferences, not beliefs. We have whole denominations that are dying today because they won't take a stand on beliefs. Right? But then people will duke it out over preferences. What's preferences? Styles of music. Last starting point. I loved it. This guy and his wife are sitting there and everybody's introducing themselves. I love starting point. love hanging out with the uh, new folks here. And, and uh, so they're talking about how long they've come here. And he says, well, I hate the music, but I come anyway. <laughs> well, okay. I'm glad you come. Right? And he continued. He said, I love hymns. I just love hymns. All this loud stuff you guys sing, I hate it. And they're getting ready to join. (laughs) Right? I imagine if somebody hates preaching, I just will never hear that. Hate the preaching, love the music, join in anyway. Right? That's a preference. We don't die on those hills. We don't die on convictions. Do you know why? If we hold a conviction... That you don't hold, or we don't hold a conviction that you do hold, you can go find another church that will hold that conviction. Honestly, I say that just totally respectfully, and you'll be fine. It's just beliefs you can't fudge on. That's tolerance. There, there will be an attitude of tolerance, finally, an attitude of diligence, eager. To maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is hard work. It's hard work. Unity in your marriage is hard, isn't it? It doesn't come easy. You have to work at being one. Unity in your family is hard work. The holidays are coming. And and you've already had this conversation. Do you think they'll show up this year? Do you think they're coming? 
Now, kids, if they come, you stay away. Right? Unity in families is hard work. It's really hard work. Unity at work is hard work. Unity in the church is hard work. Unity is hard work. It's interesting, though, how it's worded. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond comes from the Greek word for ligaments. And I looked it up this week because that's not my deal. And when I looked it up, I discovered that ligaments hold bones together. And if bones aren't held together, bodies don't work. All right? So ligaments hold bones together. What holds then the body of Christ together is peace. The ligaments are peace in the bond of peace. If there isn't peace in your home, your family will fall apart. If there isn't peace in the church, the church will fall apart. If there isn't peace at work, work will fall apart. Peace is absolutely critical and essential. So there must be an attitude, not only of humility and and meekness, but of diligence to maintain the unity of the spirit in the ligaments, in the bond of peace that's going to hold the body together. It's peace that is going to do that. Well, why are these attitudes paramount? Uh, Here's why. There are two words that occur multiple times. Uh, The word call uh, appears in some form five times in these six verses. What is the call that Paul is talking about? It's not a call to ministry. Don't let your mind think like that. It isn't a call to ministry. Otherwise, this would be written for all of us because we're all called to ministry, but it wouldn't be written specifically about a higher call than that. You say, Jerry, what could be a higher call than a call to ministry? It is a call to salvation. It is a call to salvation. You say, Jerry, how do you know? Well, I just went looking this week. When I saw the word, I thought, okay, where does this word show up elsewhere in the New Testament? Here's what I found. This describes the call. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the calling, the gifts, and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls you and saves you, he does it for good. Number two, the call is gracious. For consider your calling, brothers. All right, this is going to humble you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, noble birth, but God chose. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong? God chose. What is low and despised in the world? Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you know what? When God is building his family together and calling people, He doesn't go, oh, let me look. Uh, I think Christina's got these great characteristics. I can't do without her. So we'll we'll put her in the body. And he looks over and he sees Emily and goes, whoo, she's like amazingly gifted. We're going to put Emily in in the body. And and looks over and sees Randy and goes like, wow, he's a strapping, good-looking young man. So we got to put Randy in. No, he doesn't do that. Do you know what he does? Has zero to do with us. He just calls. That's grace. He just calls. Nothing to do with us. It's hope-filled, having the eyes of your hearts, verse 18 of 1, enlightened that you may know what is the hope. It is upward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. It is holy and saved us and called us to a holy calling, and it's heavenly. It's heavenly. That's why Mildred lay there at the age of 95, longing to see Jesus. This life, 
isn't all there is. Wow. That's the call. But then there's another word appears seven times. The word one. 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 One what? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. All right. I am so tired this morning. Let me tell you why. It's all my fault. So months ago, Wendy and I decided to get tickets to watch South Carolina play Tennessee. They never tell you when the game's going to be. Two weeks ago, they decided that game would be played at 7.15 p.m. in Columbia. So our family treks down to watch this game. It had to be the longest game in history. Like I said to, to Wendy and, 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 and Trent and Trent's little girlfriend, went, and I, said, I said, all right, so here's the deal. We're going to get beat so badly. South Carolina is so bad this year. And Alan Michaels here, he's a big Tennessee fan. And I just knew I would come back in this morning and Alan Michael is just going to pound me, right? I said, we're going to get beat so badly. We went down early enough to tailgate, enjoyed the tailgating. The blood will be flowing by the end of the first half and we'll leave. And we come out and draw first blood and at half we're leading and the game we won. Like, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, we beat Tennessee. Like Alan Michael colors his hair orange because he's a Tennessee fan. And so we beat Tennessee, but only by three. Do you know what time I left Columbia? Like got out of the traffic 12 o'clock. I got in bed at three. I got up at six. I took a nap. All right. I'm so tired. But we were, we were there and there were some Tennessee fans sprinkled around where we were sitting. And Tennessee fans, like I assume if you drive all the way from Tennessee, because we saw loads of Tennessee tags. And if you wear outfits that look like Perina dog chow stuff, that you're legit. Like you, you die for your team. And so sure enough. They're getting angry. They're yelling. There's arguing going back and forth. And no lie, while I'm standing there and I'm just kind of taking it all in and watching this game unfold, I remember years ago, years ago, Promise Keepers, williams Stadium, same stadium, 8 o'clock in the morning, 60,000 men. Now, yesterday, we were two. We were South Carolina and we were Tennessee. But then we were one. And at 8 o'clock that morning, these 60,000 men stood up with the brisk air of that fall day. And we sang, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And the harmony and just the sheer volume was unbelievable. Do you know what? I'll forget that game last night. No doubt. 
I don't think I'll ever forget that Saturday, 8 a.m. morning. Why? We were what, church? What is that again? We were one. That's what Paul's talking about here. There's, there's one body. Now, we as a church are a microcosm of that, but there's only one church. We're part of, of the church. You say, Jerry, how does that work itself out? Do you know right down the road, surely less than a half a mile is Greenlee Baptist Church. Jonathan Tipper uh, is, is finishing perhaps right now his morning sermon. In two weeks, Jonathan will sit in that youth building in a mentoring group I lead. Do we want Greenlee Baptist to succeed? That was a little weak. Do we want Greenlee Baptist to succeed? Why? Because we are. If you go up the road just a little bit further into Old Fort, you'll find Friendship Baptist Church and Gail Wilson, who used to sit on the second row in the early service here. Gail now preaches every Sunday at Friendship Baptist. Do we want Friendship Baptist Church to succeed? Why? Because we are one. If you go down the road here, just two miles, you'll find Josh Hayes just finishing up. He's a little more long-winded than me, but just finishing up his sermon at PG Baptist Church. Josh was on staff here for seven years leading children's ministry, did an amazing job. Do we want PG Baptist to succeed? Why? Because we are Absolutely. If you keep trucking down the road and you get on the bypass, you will find yourself at Cross Memorial Baptist Church right there on the bypass. And Richard Anderson, who's a member of Grace, is is the interim pastor there. Do we want Cross Memorial Baptist to succeed? Why? Because we are? Absolutely. Just this week I had lunch with Will Winters. Will was a member here and God called him to go up the mountain to Bakersville. And in Bakersville, Will is preaching at Little Lily Branch Baptist Church. Do we want Lily Branch Baptist Church to succeed? Why? Because we are? Absolutely. You go over on the east side of Marion and about a year and a half ago, we sent 50 some folks from this church with Andrew Walker at the request of a dying church to, to bring that church back to life down to 10 people. Do you know that today on this Sunday, if it's like every other Sunday right now, they have 150 people who gather to worship in that place. Do we want East Marion Baptist to succeed? Why? Because we are? Absolutely. Many of you know Chuck Tripp. Chuck is a member here, but he's not attending this church now. Why? Because he is down in Morganton, off exit 100, because that church came calling, said we need some help. We need some help. We're drowning. Could you help us? Chuck is going down there. Our chairman of deacons and his whole family went there to worship today. Jeff Dominguez went there to worship today so we could kind of figure out what we're dealing with and how to lift that church up and help that church to be strong and vital do we want victory baptist church to succeed why because we are absolutely just last sunday night across the mountain in Asheville in downtown on merriman avenue jazz cathcart jazz big strapping guy calls himself blended or mixed he's half black he's half white he's tremendously gifted uh, with the gospel Jazz had his first worship service last Sunday night. Every single time you give money at Grace, part of it goes to make that church viable and work.
And just a couple of months ago, Joanna Day just came back, uh, came back into town. And Joanna said, I'm working at Biltmore and I, I need to know, Jerry, what should I do? I said, you should go to Reach Life with Jazz and help get that work off the ground. Do we want Reach Life to succeed? Why? Because we are? Absolutely. And then just this week, I've been emailing with Pastor Cherna. Pastor Cherna pastors a church in Senegal, Africa. Senegal is 95% Muslim. We were there just in January. We're going back this January because we partnered with that church that meets under that large mango tree. I preached there in January. Three different languages translated. That sermon was translated into... Do you know that every time you give money, part of it goes to help Pastor Cherna? And are you ready for this? Are you ready? You, you thought what you gave this morning didn't matter. Are you ready for this? Pastor Cherna has 10 children. And because Senegal is one of the poorest countries on the planet, that is not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. It's one of the poorest countries on the planet. It only takes $200 a month to pay his salary and feed his kids. Do you know that we do that? This church puts food on his table. Yes. So that Cherna can go and go into the into that into that, that village and preach the gospel. And we'll go partner with them in January. Do we want that church in Muslim Senegal to succeed? Why? Because we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're not Tennessee and South Carolina. Alan Michael and I love each other, just rib each other. We love each other. It's nothing compared to what God has called us to do together. We're one. Wow. Wow. We're one. So what I want you to do.